0: Hi, I'm Ken, and I'm Dee, and welcome to Antiques Freaks. It's a podcast
1: for you and you alone. What antiques are we talk about this week? I wanted to talk about the épern or épernier. What is it? Ah, uh, my favorite thing to drop at a party or casually in an antique store. Épernier, and I will be saying it like that because that's the appropriate pronunciation. But you can say épern if you're not sure how to make sounds is a decorative and useful centerpiece made of silver, glass, porcelain, or any other metal. So it's generally a centerpiece that is consisting of a large central bowl or basket, which sits on anywhere from three to five little feet. And from this center bowl, radiate branches that will support small baskets, dishes, or sometimes candle holders. There can be anywhere between one to eight branches, and as stated before, the branches can take a variety of shapes depending on what you would like the ipernier to be doing.
0: Now, when you say this is your favorite thing to drop at a party or an antique store, is this your favorite factoid to drop into a conversation, or is this your favorite object to physically shove off the table like an impertinent house cat?
1: It's my favorite factoid. Ah. Oh. I wouldn't shove one off the table for reasons I'll get into later. Oh no. Is it filled with swords? Uh, no, not yet. Are the branches swords? It could be if you wanted. <sighs> So historically, the branches would hold any number of baskets, dishes, candle holders, yada yada. They would be used for serving sweetmeats, fruit, cakes, candy, flowers, seasonings, spices, or condiments.
0: So it's a little basket tree.
1: It's kind of like a little basket tree or a little bowl tree. Made of mietel. Eperniers were traditionally made from silver... Around the start of the 20th century, they began morphing slowly into a metal base with glass baskets or branches. Oh, that sounds delightful. Yeah. How whimsical. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about this is the most whimsical thing you could have as a decoration, just as a warning. What a whimsical son of a bitch. It really is. So eventually, going through the Victorian era you would start getting Iperniers made entirely out of glass, which would become the trend moving forward until they dropped out of favor at the 1950s.
0: This has greatly increased the house cat smashing potential of this object, I have to say.
1: You have no idea the house cat smashing potential of this object again. <laughs> I cannot
0: begin to conceive the house
1: cat smashing
0: potential of this object. <laughs> so... My mind is too tiny. Like a house cat.
1: No, it's just that if you haven't handled one, you have not even begun to grasp the amount of terror it inspires. One of the main things about this is that aside from the base bowl or center bowl, the arms are removable, or at least the bowls or baskets hanging from them are removable, so that they can be cleaned. Now, imagine something with eight removable delicate glass dishes in, say, my house, surrounded by three kittens. And crash! (laughs) In fact, these were colloquially known as the housemaid's nightmare in the Victorian era. <laughs> because as a display piece, they were extremely delicate and came in several parts. Several smashable parts? Several special smashable parts. How splendid. The term épergne probably comes from the French term epargne, which means to save. The idea being that dinner guests were saved of the trouble of passing dishes around the table, as the French court had popularized... The French style of dining, in which everything was dumped on the table.
0: The à la Française method of dining, popular at the beginning of the 19th century, to be later replaced by the à la Russe style of dining at the latter half of the 19th century, wherein courses would be brought to the table one at a time.
1: And that has its own place in the story of the uh, Pernier.
0: (gasps) Excellent. (laughs) I have steepled my fingers. You cannot see that, as this is an audio-only program, but
1: rest assured... I am listening intently. Get that picture in your mind, listeners. So this was made to accompany the à la Française style of dining to save space on the table. And it also saved your shit. A lot of times these would be used for either condiments or sweets, dessert portions of the meal. So if you put them in this little center fancy basket where people could sort of just grab them from the middle, you would have these extremely expensive parts of your meal and they wouldn't get cleared away with the dishes if someone didn't eat them. Oh. A thrifty thing for when you had fancy edibles out at the party. Not that kind. I'm going to save these tea cakes and serve them at my next dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's like if you, if you have nutmeg, for example, if you dump nutmeg on their individual plates, you will lose that nutmeg. If you let them take a tiny spoon and put an appropriate amount of nutmeg on their food, you will still have a bowl of nutmeg left over and it will not get thrown out. It will, however, be extremely unsanitary to pour into a jar and reuse later. There wasn't much about any of the dining methods that was sanitary for a very long time. I know. (laughs) The most popular style was a center bowl or dish raised on a column, with branches or arms extending outwards, each holding a bowl or a dish. Earlier, these would be very heavily featured as bowls and dishes because they would have food on them. Although you would get very specific variations for ones that would hold cruettes for vinegar and oils that had perhaps seasoned with fancy spices. My fancy oils. <laughs> and versions called the fruitier, which you get one guess what that served generally. Did it serve fruit? It served fruit. Incroyable. The first time we have any record of the Epernier being spoken about in England was the George the I era, roughly 1714 to 1727. Not roughly, that's extremely specific date that I just gave you. And these would be very long and low and generally shaped like boats for some reason. I mean, if you have the option to shape something like a boat, you take it. This was actually based on the earliest ancestor of the Pernier, which was called a Surtout. Also known as a Sur-Also. Sir also And a Sur-As-Well, if you're fancy. Do you know how to pronounce this one? It's S-U-R-T-O-U-T. I
0: call it a Surtout, but that's because I'm a street urchin.
1: Un Surtout. Is how I was assuming?
0: I'm over here making puns. You're
1: over there actually being French. I'm really into Eperniers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also, I don't know enough French to have really understood your puns. I'm just kind of taking them on faith. Well, sir too.
0: Oh, god damn it! Oh, fuck me. Sounds like S-I-R, comma, T-O-O. Oh, god,
1: Jesus Christ.
0: So it would be sir also, and then sir as well, and... It was a very funny bit, if I do say so myself. If I might pat myself on my comedy back as it were. Bend
1: me over and cut me into fucking ham. I did an excellent job with those puns. <sighs> uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so the Sur as well It was kind of like just like a clunky condiment tray. It would have all of your spices and oils and salt. And these are fancifully shaped like a boat often to suggest that they had been shipped overseas, all of these spices. Oh. Which, as you said earlier, is almost disgustingly whimsical. Almost? Almost. This tradition made its way into England based on... Hey, Ken, what great exodus of the Huguenots do you think caused (laughs) the Epernier to make its way to England? Was it the Edict of Fontainebleau or the revocation of the Edict of Fontainebleau? The revocation, my friend. I've done it, I have. When the French Huguenots fled France, at least one of them made it to England. (laughs) I have on good... I have on g- good history that at least one man made it. A silversmith by the name of Paul de la
0: For more on the revocation of the Edict of Fontainebleau, check out our fans' episodes.
1: <laughs> it's, yeah, we do talk about it a lot there. So yeah, in the 1730s, he produced the first recorded épernier to make its appearance in the English court. Now, as time marched on and methods of dining changed, the Victorian period no longer had need of an épernier with the à la Rousse serving style. So what was the Epernier used for? Uh, Crimbus? Crimbo? No, not crimbo. Crimbo decoration? Crimbo tree? No. Oh. It was for flowers. (gasps) Because the Victorians weren't one to take a whimsical serving piece and discard it just because their method of serving had changed. I was gonna say, far be it from them to abandon sickening whimsy. Exactly. In fact, they would ratchet it up a notch. Oh? The style of the éperignés would be slowly morphed into something more suitable to strictly a display piece, which is where we get what we might associate with, I'm going to say current, although what I mean by that is like the 1920s. The vision of the éperigné popularly is a central bowl with a central trumpet shape with several other trumpet shapes emerging around it. And that trumpet shape was because it was made for posies and flowers instead of food, the way the other ones had been.
0: Oh, little vases.
1: Later on, the Victorian era's obsession with naturalism and naturalist shapes would change the fluting into generally the shape of a lily, into the art nouveau. We do love us some art nouveau. And the épergne would actually be a haute thing to have at the table until... Mid-century modern sort of deleted everyone's affection for chintzy excess in decor and it would drop off in popularity pretty significantly.
0: Yet another reason for me personally to hate mid-century modern.
1: Another thing the Victorians did is that by changing the material it was being made from, they slowly introduced it into lower and lower classes. Which sounds really rude the way I just said it. I mean, you know. Obviously, a sterling silver piece would be only for the highest of the high and the richest of the rich with glass bowls or flutes later you drop the cost all the way down to cheaply made all glass eperniers which a lot of upper middle class households could afford and that is the the short and sweet history of the epernier and how it is used i love it i need at least 5 in my home ah but what kind do you want my friend
0: i want the silver ones like little trees with little glass bowls hanging off of them
1: i hope you have a lot of money oh no <laughs> <laughs> Is this going to have to become a patreon stretch goal? Yeah, it might have to it might might have to be um <laughs> the first thing you should know about collecting an Epernier is that they are extremely expensive for the most part. Some of the later ones made from like the thirties through the sixties will probably run you less. I have seen a few as low as thirty dollars. This is not common in my experience perhaps other parts of the country and world, have a different experience of this.
0: Basically, the cheap antiques we have around here are strictly nautical.
1: Yeah, pretty, like, we'll get you a good deal on a whale's tooth, but an épernier really runs us up. I don't like to make blanket statements because I know that there are different antiques that are more cheap and more plentiful in different areas. So maybe the Appernier is a common sight other places, but around here, even the Fenton ones, they can run anywhere from 100 to $400 if it's a nice make and old enough. Damn. So one of the proper sterling silver ones shaped like a tree with bowls for serving food, which would date back to the early 1800s, would run, oh, I don't know, in thousands pretty easily.
0: No. <laughs> Dee, I don't have thousands.
1: I believe an all sterling silver one does kind of come at a base price of 10k, depending on how heavy it is. Just because of the silver weight? Just because of the silver weight. Damn. A lot of the times, if it's not marked, and usually they are marked, these were luxury items, which increases the likelihood they would be marked, you can start kind of roughly dating them based on their style. A neoclassical-styled épernier suggests the Regency. A Rococo-style épernier suggests anywhere from the 1700s to George I era. All glass trumpet shapes suggest the Victorian era. An épernier made by Fenton or the company Bellique were being made from the 1930s through the 1960s. And you can kind of guess based on how tacky they are, uh, which of those eras they've (laughs) slot into. (laughs) (laughs) And you can also use, of course, your handy-dandy glass skills and look at what kind of glass it is, especially if it's all glass. Is it hand-blown? Is it mold-blown, generally with a trio of evenly spaced mold marks? Is it pressed glass with dull cut glass-like decorations or molded glass with dull decorations? So dull or dull? Or or dull or dull. Some of them will be cut glass as well, but those are generally mold blown or hand blown. (laughs) Cranberry glass is easily the most common color of Epernier for whatever reason. Really? It was just popular. It was vivid and vibrant and fruit colored. Our cranberry glass episode coming soon. Yeah, we really should have one. Even back to the Victorian era, a lot of the Victorian all-glass Eperniers you're going to find are going to be cranberry colored, which I just thought was fun. I think it's neat. When you're Epernier hunting, I think the one you are most likely to encounter is the Fenton Epernier. Fenton was a collectible glass company. Quick aside, did we do an episode on Fenton? We must have. Check out our episode on f- <laughs> Fenton for more information. Well, well, hang on, let, let, me, let me
0: Google real quick. Holy shit, I don't think we have a Fenton episode. Oh, good God. I don't know
1: how, because we
0: mention it every episode. Yeah, now I'm
1: really in the fucking shit. This is going to take me like three books to get through. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Uh, (laughs) I'm so sorry I've done this to you. A Fenton episode coming someday. (laughs) Fenton was an extremely prolific glass company that worked on collectible glass and I believe is still making a lot of its models to this day. There are some ways you can identify a Fenton at a glance. For the most part, they are marked with the word Fenton and or a sticker that says Fenton and with golden black. You can also look for an F and an oval, which would indicate that the Fenton had used another company's mold. They were infamous and are to this day for purchasing old molds and reusing them. I would say Fenton is responsible for a good quarter of all of the reproduction issues in the antiques industry.
0: Well done, Fenton.
1: <laughs> I guess it's not a reproduction, but it's mold reuse, which is like one of those weird clammy areas. And also that very specific kind of tight ribbon candy like ruffle oh i hate that and that is the fenton classic and that in hobnail they are well known for their hobnail as well i hate that too
0: <laughs> i hate fenton and everything they've done to me
1: fenton appreciators i'm so sorry for the way ken is gonna act in the fenton episode <laughs> but i can't stop him because he's his own man with his own opinions
0: do you love fenton against all odds write in
1: antiques at gmail.com Fenton's kind of considered the bottom of the barrel when it comes to Eperniers, just because they tend to be modern, and they tend to be more cheaply produced. And also, frankly, I I like Fenton just fine, depending on what the item is. <laughs> frankly, they have a pretty hideous color range, and I don't understand it. <laughs> So tune in to our Fenton episode coming soon. I Fenton has a shade of cranberry glass that is so offensive to the eyes. What the hell did cranberry glass ever do to you? It, it's, it's theirs. It's just theirs. Theirs has this neon twinge to it. I can spot it from a hundred yards. If you lined up 20 pieces of cranberry glass, I could find the Fenton immediately. I do not know what they do to make that color so repugnant to me. What they do. <laughs> I love cranberry glass. I own quite a bit of it. It gives any meal a spooky vampire look. There's, it's, it's such a from the tube acrylic paint color to me that it sets off my, oh, uh, my it's bad. I don't like, I don't like it. <laughs> so as this may have suggested, there are a lot of resources for determining Fenton and a lot of Fenton collectors, which makes determining the value or origin of your épernier a lot easier. Once you start getting out of the Fenton area, and again, those can still go for the hundreds, You are looking at quite a bit of money just because of... This might be factually incorrect. Now we are wandering into my opinion territory. I think it's because of how easy they are to break. Just one step closer to the edge? And they're about to break. And they're broken. It broke. Oh no! (laughs) How could this happen? Any fanciful piece that doubles as utilitarian piece and is also generally by its very nature extremely fragile... Well, just not many of them survive, now do they? How could this be? Who would do such a thing? Well, it's because you made it out of delicate spun glass and put it on little stems in a bowl. And? And you shouldn't have done that. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's an editorialization, but I actually do believe that for the most part, since there are a lot of them, the high price and high demand just comes from the fact that that is for unbroken sets of Epernier.
0: They're so pretty.
1: And that being said, you could probably make a, a killing as someone who dealt in épernay parts.
0: But- then consider the difficulty of shipping them and having them arrive as unbroken as you found them.
1: True, but imagine, I mean, replacements, LTDs manage to make that work. I don't know how they do anything. So I guess what I'm saying is become a large corporation. Oh, okay. Have a lot of money and suddenly those problems will stop being problems. <laughs> I'll get right on it. To double bind because to have a lot of money, you've got to become the Apernier parts dealer. Can we take this to Shark Tank? Yes, valuation at $3 million. Um, We are offering it for a stake of 1%. Particularly, (laughs) Particularly the trumpets or bowls and the metal fittings. The structure of a lot of them is that in the base bowl, there are little holes that metal pipes fit into that the glass trumpets fit into. And once those metal fittings are gone, good luck. Oh no. You spend a lot of time haunting lighting sections of restoration hardware places to sort of try to replace those. You know, replacing the glass parts can be as easy as finding another broken one and frankensteining. And I have seen my fair share of frankensteins Eperniers, let me tell you. Tell me. There is one where each trumpet and the base vase as well, each and every one of them was a different color because they were just taken from smashed pieces.
0: Oh, that sounds magical. (laughs) They
1: sold it as like a rainbow glass. It sold in like a beat and nobody even cared when I was just like, you know, this is like 12 different parts glued together, right?
0: I don't care. It's beautiful.
1: It's another problem. Uh, a lot of times when you find these things, people have glued them down to prevent their breakage. This decreases the value pretty significantly. Yeah, because, oh no. Oh no. And joke's on you, asshole. It doesn't, it doesn't prevent breakage as much as you kind of hoped it would. Also that, yeah. In fact, I would say they probably break more often because you have destroyed the fulcrum on which they move.
0: I mean, you know... <laughs> Rigidity does not prevent things from shattering. Flexibility does. <laughs> this has been physics with art majors. <laughs> gonna,
1: gonna, gonna have your doctor friend on to describe how physics of glass shattering. <laughs> Shit, that would actually be a really tight episode, though. Uh, so as I may have intimated, reproductions are a bit of a problem with these because they're popular and they break easy. And as I've also suggested just a moment before, an easy tell is that the trumpets or bowls or branches in any way, shape, or form should be removable. A lot of reproductions do not allow for them to be removed and are cast as single pieces or are glued or epoxied together before even being sold. The fools. And that is a dead giveaway. If you don't have any other evidence that it's old and was maybe glued together by a weird grandma in the 70s, that is a reproduction. (laughs) I've seen that too, yeah. What a vivid image. I also watched someone smash one by picking it up because they assumed it was one piece. Oh no. That was a hard day to get through. Oh no.
0: <laughs> yeah. How could this happen to me?
1: Weight is important. Actually, Ken, you got a very quick demonstration of that at the savers with me the other day.
0: I did. We found a beautiful piece of actual hundred year old glass, a cheese dish, if I'm recalling correctly, and it was very heavy. And then we saw a very similar piece that I thought was from the same set, but then D-Ray picked it up and instructed me to pick it up as well. And we discovered at once that it was far too light because it contained no lead. And was therefore a
1: reproduction. So that's one way you can kind of tell reproduction glass, it's always lighter than it should be. This is a little touchier with a finely blown piece of glass, for example, or just anything thin, but that rule stands. If it's suspiciously light, you might want to look otherware. Otherware? Otherware. Otherware. Yeah. I stand by the dumb thing I said. It's my favorite Neil Gaiman series, otherware. I prob- <laughs> Some other things you can look out for are just certain designs. Almost to a man, if Eperniers were men, (laughs) if you see a glass one with hanging baskets, all glass generally, that is almost always a reproduction. Usually an art reproduction that was not made intentionally to fool, so perhaps you could just call it a contemporary piece. It's sticky because people will buy them and then resell them as reproductions, so you know. But the Hanging Baskets is a really rare design. It generally dates back to the late 1700s when these things pop up. And the chances of one showing up at your local flea market are pretty low. I'd be suspicious. So you're saying there's a chance. There's always a chance, my friend. There's always a chance. You gotta strike that right balance of being suspicious and just open-minded enough.
0: I feel like that's a life-in-general thing. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Not so much an antique-specific thing.
1: Yeah, it is, but, like, the only part of my life I ever, like, pay close attention to is the antiques part, so, like, everything else I'm just stumbling through. I mean, you know what? Fair. (laughs) The other really big red flag is Fenton pieces. Yeah, I know what I said.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to our anti-Fenton podcast. (laughs) (laughs)
1: When found originally a very popular Epernier mold, which was produced during the 1940s, from a glass company called LG Wright, in 1999, Fenton, which is a company that still runs, purchased roughly 200 of their glass molds. That's several, that is. It's many. The only difference is that a couple of them are marked with a special logo that says Centennial Collection. These are all 16 and a half inches tall exactly, which is unusual because usually no two Eperniers are roughly the same size. It'll have three trumpets above a crimped rim base with a center trumpet above it. And their connector will be glass featuring no metal, which in and of itself is a little tiny bit unusual. Also highly breakable. (laughs) Yeah, also that. The ones that aren't marked Centennial Collection just do not have any permanent marking. They'll have a sticker, and usually the stickers are actually pretty easy to date. These aren't pernicious or anything in their infiltration of the market, but they're there and in fairly big numbers. And that... My friends, is Epernier. Oh, hot tickety dog, I just found a silver plate one for $2,000. That's pretty cheap, actually.
0: And it's ours now. <laughs> Join our Patreon, and it will be. In a related matter, we have an Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash
1: <laughs> Sources for today include acsilver.co.uk, Epernier, Epernier who? <laughs> Which <What? laughs> is not actually the title of the article, but that's how it comes up on the link silverrecyclers.com. What is an Epernier? Beverly History of the Epernier. Owlcation.com. Humanities. What is an Epernier? Regency Redingote. English Epernier Evolution. The The Center of Attention. Eperniers. And AdirondackGirlAtHeart.com. Collecting Vintage Fenton Glass. And, of course, Wikipedia. Thank
0: you, Wikipedia. Donate, won't you? Thank you. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly at gmail.com, You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques
1: Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you like the different ways I've butchered the French language today, consider scrolling on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leaving us a delightful review. It makes us happy and gets our voices into a variety of extra listening ears. If you would like to purchase a wide
0: variety of vintage goods
1: or t-shirts and stickers with the podcast
0: logo on them, you can check out our Etsy at etsy.com shop slash antiques freaks.
1: I've got a big book re-up coming. I've actually sold a stunning number of them, so that's going to be fun. I got some wild ones coming in, including a guide to the Tartans of Scotland. We also have
0: surgical clamps.
1: Yes. <laughs> and haunted clowns. And haunted clowns, a bunch of those coming in.
0: If you thought to yourself, damn, I'm out of Antiques Freaks for the week, fret not, because we produce bonus episodes over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where we are week by week, chapter by chapter, recreating the penny dreadful experience by reading aloud and reviewing as we go, Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. And
1: let me assure you, it's a good
0: time, especially if you like vampires. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love.
1: So much love.
0: And thank you in particular for listening. That's right, you. Au revoir. Goodbye.